BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends and neighbors. Another week has rolled by with lots of breaking news, including... Hurricane Dorian crushed the Bahamas, but despite Donald Trump's dire warnings, spared Alabama. (laughs) Donald Trump, lookalike Boris Johnson, struck out in Parliament because, unlike our own Congress, members of his party refused to go along with whatever he wanted. And Walmart, Kruger, CVS, and Wegman said, enough's enough. If Congress won't do anything about gun control, we will. All that and more with today's outstanding panel this Friday, September 6th. We welcome to the table Nikki Schwab, a Washington correspondent covering the White House of Congress in the 2020 election for the New York Post. Hi, Nikki. Hello. Good to see you. Good welcome to see you back. as well. Peter Nicholas is a White House correspondent for The Atlantic. Hi, Peter. Good to be with you, Bill. And Chris Liu, former Undersecretary of Labor under President Obama, now Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Hello, Chris. Great to be here. All right, let's dive right in as we speak. A heavy rain in the Carolinas uh, with uh, what's left of Hurricane Dorian. Uh, Nikki, what would people have said if... um, during, while the hurricane was striking or threatening at least uh, the United States, President Obama went out and played two rounds of golf. Well, I think the Republicans would have had a lot to say about it 10 years ago. And now we just sort of like let it, let it be. Because I, apparently optics is not something the president cares about anymore. But it was interesting that um, all during the storm, too, it was like he was Al Roker all of a sudden. <laughs> I mean, he was tweeting... <laughs> The progress of the storm. Yes, right? yes. Uh, which he was, was, maybe it was the Weather Channel. <laughs> it, it's quite something to see. And I mean, I was watching the pool reports on Sunday, and I was a little baffled whenever I saw that he had left Camp David to go to his, you know, his like local golf club. Especially whenever he skipped a, you know, a European trip to, you know, monitor the hurricane. And so we sort of all assumed that he was going to just stay at Camp David and and be on his best behavior, and instead, you know, he's he's out golfing, and you know, there are news organizations that, that caught him on the golf course. Because the White House is always very sort of, oh, well, he was he was there, but they won't necessarily say who his golf partners are. If he mm-hmm. actually even golfs, sometimes they won't tell the pool reporters. Um, but then, you know, more recently, we've definitely been seeing footage of him physically on the golf course, so we know that he's indeed playing the sport. And Peter, part of the tweets about the progress of the storm uh, took an unusual turn when the president warned that Alabama was in the direct course of the storm and the National Weather Bureau had to come out and say, Alabama is not, capital N-O-T, going to be struck by Dorian. This has been one of the most mystifying stories of the Trump administration, (laughs) I have to say. Um, So what happened here is the president uh, incorrectly 
warned the state of Alabama that it was uh, under threat and that Hurricane Dorian might well uh, make landfall there. This was incorrect. I mean, as you pointed out, the National Weather Service did something highly unusual. I wonder if it must be unprecedented in the annals of uh, history and had to fact check the president and said he was wrong. The president, instead of saying I made a mistake and moving on, has insisted that he was correct and that the media has gotten it wrong and that uh, the storm uh, was at risk of uh, wasn't, you know, had put Alabama in danger. And this is, we're now in the fifth, sixth, seventh day of this. He won't let it go. And there's real devastation in the Bahamas. People are dying. And South Carolina is at risk. And the president is still inexplicably talking about Alabama. So, Chris, uh, we're not making this up. Here is the president uh, on tape talking about uh, Alabama. Watch out. Alabama could even be in for at least some very strong winds and something more than that. So then we see the video of the president with the map that he gets at the briefing, looking at the course of the storm, and people noticed, good reporters like Peter and others and Nikki covering the White House, that the weather map had been modified by somebody with a Sharpie to make it look like it was going to hit Alabama. The president was asked about the use of this Sharpie. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And it turns out he does know, Chris. Yeah, no, that's, uh, there are so many mystifying aspects of this story. I mean, it's <laughs> worth noting that the, the Washington Post reporting f said he did do it. And, and that's, uh, there was a senior White House staffer says no one uses a black Sharpie like that. And, and so going to Peter's point more broadly, you know, if you make a mistake, say you made a mistake, the word, it's like textbook example of bad communication strategy. When you're in a hole, you just keep on digging. And then last night he brings out his Homeland Security advisor, who is a distinguished a rear admiral in the Navy, who then puts out a statement, just kind of this odd statement saying, yeah, you know, I did brief the president. There was this discussion about Alabama. And what Pre the Trump is doing is he's conflating time and conflating maps uh, to try to prove that he was right instead of simply saying, you know what, I was, you know, erring on the side of caution. I goofed. No big deal. And no one would fault him for that. But what was kind of a, a humorous day one story is now stretched for a whole week. Well, that, that was the thing, Peter, is that it, it was Sunday. That tweet was Sunday. Sunday. Yeah. And here we are Friday morning and he is still talking about it. Right. Rather than just letting it go. Well, which everybody would accept as a whatever. I mean, I, so I, I was working on Sunday and I didn't even notice the tweet until, you know, Alabama's Weather Service came out and corrected it. But that was hours later. But I think, you know, most people sort of didn't even bat an eyelash at the initial tweet until, you know, it, it became this like much bigger thing. And the thing that was sort of interesting yesterday was he had Stephanie Grisham, his press secretary, put out that tweet mocking CNN, CNN yeah. over messing up a map. And, you know, CNN's comms department came out and was like, listen, we goofed and we changed it within like, you know, a couple of minutes and we're going to put it on Twitter that we, you know, we messed up. But like, why didn't you do that on Sunday? And it's, you know, at that point it's Thursday. Well, he can't admit that he was wrong, and it speaks to a certain kind of personal insecurity. I think a secure person, a confident person, would, would do what Chris uh, suggested, say, I made a mistake, and move on, let it go, and talk about real things, like the real-time devastation that um, uh, is facing the, the Bahamas or the threat posed to the, um, South Carolina. But he wants to perseverate and just dwell on you know, whether he was right or wrong in Alabama, 
the country wants to move on, but it, it reminds me a little bit of the of the kerfuffle over the crowd side as an inauguration. He continues to talk about it. <laughs> yes. He insists that he had the biggest crowd ever. He won't acknowledge the reality of it, that Obama had a bigger crowd in 2009. So it speaks to, uh, it's a character issue here. Well, look, uh, can I just take a step back? You know, what he's been trying to do over the last couple of days is pin this on the fake news media. And what he's actually done is to diminish the power of the presidency. One of the most powerful tools a president has is the bully pulpit. And you need to use that bully pulpit in a time of national emergency. And he has sufficiently weakened it so that if there really truly were a national emergency, well over half the people in this country would not believe a word he said. Yeah. Well, in terms of believability, not again that this is the most important issue to talk about, but... Um, because I think they're mishandling the white the administration's mishandling of the issue. Um, let's talk about Mike Pence going to Ireland. So he has meetings in Dublin. Now I've been to Dublin. I don't know how many of you've been to Dublin. Dublin's a great city. There's yeah. some great hotels in Dublin. <laughs> Wonderful hotels. Uh, the ambassador's <laughs> residence is in Dublin. He stayed 183 miles away <laughs> in Donald at Donald Trump's golf course, which the president says this was purely by chance. Well, I had no involvement other than it's a great place. It's Dunbeg, I own it. It's in Ireland. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And he had his uh, family lives there, which is really amazing. From what I understood, he was going there. Then I heard he was going there, but I, I didn't. It wasn't my idea for Mike to go there. Mike went there because his family's there. That's my, that's my understanding of it. You didn't suggest that he... No, I didn't. I don't suggest anything. I don't suggest it, nor did I with... Uh, the Attorney General, I never spoke to the Attorney General about using my hotel. I have a lot of hotels all over the place, and people use them because they're the best. I mean, you know, they're the best. They're the best, and you should sign up too and go to my website. And blah, 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 blah. But, Nikki, the Vice President's Chief of Staff said the President did suggest maybe he stay there. Yes, of course. <laughs> I mean, are we, are we surprised by this? <laughs> I mean, even even if Trump didn't, like verbally suggest that the vice president stay there you know he suggested that vice president pence stay there so i think it would have you know i think he would have probably you know given mike a little a little uh, mm -hmm. little pain if he hadn't right so so peter if you were on pool that day uh, you would have been flying back and forth on the air force two from shannon to dublin just well, for these meetings it's to Nikki's point, it's part of a pattern, really, of the president showcasing his properties. And we've seen this, we saw this happen in Biarritz at the end of the G7, where he gave a press conference that was essentially an infomercial for um, the Doral Country Club, which he owns <laughs> Miami. in Florida. In, uh, in Miami, where he was saying, uh, let's hold the next G7, and the U.S. is hosting the G7 summit, let's host it at my uh, country club. And he was talking about the fabulous rooms and the facilities there. And you just, we, again, we're in uncharted territory in the American presidency. We've never quite seen anything like it. Um, you know. I mean, he's never not, so the only place he's ever gone in Washington, D.C., unless it's been a home for a, a private fundraiser. Uh, and very few of those. Very few of those, even, has been the, the Trump Hotel in D.C. That's the only place he's ever eaten. He's never, you know, stepped out to be you among know, the people. We, we were talking earlier about Camp David. Um, George H.W. Bush basically lived at Camp David, spent a tremendous amount of time mm -hmm. there. Um, and George W. Bush loved Camp David. President Obama, as Chris can tell us, I guess, uh, went to Camp David from time to time. Uh, Trump very rarely goes to Camp mm -hmm. David. I think this was only his eighth or ninth 
uh, trip to Camp David in the uh, two and a half years he's been in office. I think the reason is because there's no golf course there, really, that's handy. <laughs> well, unless you have a helicopter to fly you to Sterling. Yeah, back to, back to Sterling. To Sterling, Virginia. Yeah, and let's, I mean, that, that's the point that, uh, you know, way to pick up on what Nikki said. So he helicoptered from D.C. to Maryland, Thurmont, Maryland, which is not that close. And then he leaves to go from Maryland to Sterling, Virginia. So he manages to cover all three jurisdictions uh, in this area uh, in the course of a day just to play golf. And I will say, actually, having been to Camp David multiple times, there is actually a part three course. It's not probably of the quality (laughs) of his course. I I would also say just on the Pence thing, you know, my first job in the White House was managing President Obama's cabinet. And so we scrutinized everyone's travel down to your entourage down to uh, whether you flew first class. The idea that President Obama, not that he had any property to find anyone to stay at, would have said, hey, go stay here or not stay here, uh, is unthinkable. And then you go back to the comment from Pence's chief of staff, Mark Short. Mark Short initially justified it that the Secret Service said it would be easier to protect Pence at the resort. Um, now, subsequent reporting from Politico says that's actually not true. And let's, let's forget, we're talking about Ireland. We're not talking about Moscow. We're not talking about Beijing. There are plenty of fine hotels. Uh, the last three presidents, the United States, have all visited Dublin. They've all stayed at hotels. The Secret Service knows how to protect them in Dublin. Right. Uh, on the Pence point, before we move on, Tom Lobianco, who's a colleague of ours, uh, by the way, has just written a new book about Mike Pence. He covered Mike Pence in the State House in Indiana and here in Washington. Um, he reported for Yahoo yesterday that there are rumblings in the White House um, of particularly maybe, well, he says, led by Jared and Ivanka, Javanka, Javanka, that they ought to maybe think about dumping Mike Pence, even though the president has already anointed him, and replace him with a woman on the ticket. Have you heard anything, Peter, yeah, along those lines? Yeah, the, these rumors have been around for a long time. I think uh, Trump tried to put it to rest by saying, I mean, he's, he has said explicitly that uh, Pence will be on the ticket in 2020. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rumors, though, never die. And there does seem to make some sense. There is a rationale for the argument of putting a woman on the ticket. It might energize and juice the ticket a little bit, get women voters to take a second look at Trump. Trump has been bleeding, hemorrhaging suburban women and who don't like his rhetoric, put off by his tweets. Uh, putting Nikki Haley or a woman on the ticket that might well be the antidote to that. I mean, on the flip side, though, Bill, Pence, there's no one more obsequious and loyal to Trump than Mike Pence. I mean, you have to look far and wide. And he's given Trump really no reason and no cause to bounce him from the ticket. Yeah, the mm-hmm. just what we talked about the, being the latest example, right? Yeah. We remember that tweet from Nikki Haley, too, where she tried to put the rumors to rest, but it kind of came out of the blue. So everyone was like, hmm, all right, what? Because it, it was a couple weeks after, I think, Politico perhaps had reported that there were sort of rumblings about putting her specifically on the ticket. And then out of the blue, she tweets like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm, you know, I'm pro Mike Pence. But it was sort of a strange sort of political move on her part. But Chris, no matter what he says, the president, (laughs) with his character, he's certainly capable of dumping Mike Pence, no matter how loyal Mike Pence has been. You know, it is ironic since we started the conversation with Alabama and the president not willing to admit a mistake, where he does sometimes admit a mistake without actually admitting it is among his personnel choices. You'll recall he said this was the best cabinet ever, the smartest yeah. cabinet ever, yeah. hiring the best people. Two thirds of these people are now gone. So he loves his generals until he doesn't love his generals and he gets rid of them. And so it's that's the one place where you can find that this is a president who clearly makes rash changes when he's not happy with something without admitting a mistake. That being said, you know, we are so far into this political cycle. It, it seems uh, a little far fetched at this point. 
One story that I believe this uh, did not get as much attention as it should have this week is um, an announcement by the defense secretary. And I must admit, I had to look up the name of the defense secretary. Is, I, I, don't I would too. I point. don't know whether he's... It's not Jim Mattis anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether he's he, acting. He wrote a book, fact, though. <laughs> he's confirmed. Mark Esper. Mark Esper. Esper. Yeah. Yeah. He is confirmed. He's no longer acting. Right. Announced that they are diverting $3.6 billion from the Pentagon to build the wall, portions of the wall, yep. at any rate. Money that is coming from um, projects already approved on military bases, both here uh, and around the world, which include uh, schools and classrooms and engineering centers and new piers for more submarines and all that kind of stuff. Um, is this going to get any backlash in the Congress? From the Congress? I mean, these are... It, it, a lot of these are in red districts, right, where these projects are being ripped out of. That's a good question. I mean, they've obviously been not in D.C. Uh, they'll be coming back next week. Um, I assume, obviously, Democrats will be hollering about it, especially because he's pulled funds away from Puerto Rico, which is a, one of his favorite pastimes. But uh, I, I would assume that, you know, behind the scenes, Republicans are, are steaming if it's coming from their own districts. But, I mean, we've not seen a ton of, you know, vocalization on the Hill that's anti-Trump. I mean, when, when, when those people do, they well, seem to be voted out of office very quickly. But, uh, Peter, the, the Pentagon is usually, they're, they're, part of the strategy of military funding, and the, and the reason the budget remains as high as it does, is because they very skillfully plant these projects in districts mm -hmm. all around the country so that every member of Congress has some military base or some, right? So that's, that's exactly really, right. This hits home. That's exactly it? right. I mean, the Pentagon is very savvy politically, and they know how to get Congress on board. And one way is to spread the money around so that both Republicans and Democrats are, have a vested interest in these Pentagon projects. The question that I have is that at some point there may be a Democratic president um, who's in the White House. I mean, that might happen. I mean, it's, it wouldn't be too far-fetched to think at some point <laughs> a coin. might be back. So if a Democratic president is in office, what if he or she uses the same techniques and reroutes money uh, for the Pentagon that Congress never appropriated for certain kinds of pet projects? Are Republicans in Congress going to go along with this? And is Trump not setting a, a dangerous precedent? That um, uh, Republican members of congressmen, uh, members of Congress might not like if a Democrat is in the White House. So, Chris, if Congress, following Peter's point, if Congress doesn't uh, approve the funding, you just you are the president. You declare an emergency for whatever you want. Yeah, you know, and the diversion is fascinating when you look at the breakdown by state. Eighty million came from North Carolina, thirty million from Colorado, uh, th uh, eight million. I'm sorry, thirty million from Arizona, eight million from Colorado. Three states held by endangered. Uh, Republican senators, and it's worth looking at the Charlotte Observer did a scathing piece about Tom Tillis yesterday, where they basically said, "Look, all your obsequiousness on the on the on the national the national emergency, where you first said you were against it, then you said you were for it, uh, has gotten us nothing." And so, look, um, you know, Article One spending power resides in Congress, and Congress needs to assert its authority here. The question is, if Republicans are not willing to to buck the president on this, it will likely happen, but it certainly sets a dangerous precedent for the next uh, administration. So this is an historic day that we have to recognize, uh, those of us in the media, because this is the debut day of Sarah Huckabee Sanders on Fox News. Oh, I Fox, didn't realize that. On Fox and Friends this morning. Uh, and it's, it's, I think it's interesting because if the president was not tweeting about Dorian or defending Mike Pence this week, he was attacking Fox News. Peter, you've been writing about this. What's up with Trump? Is 98% of obsequiousness on the part of Fox News not enough? 
Well, first of all, I just encourage listeners to go to the Atlantic website in the next uh, 24, 48, 72 hours. We'll be having a good story about Fox News and the president. But um, what's interesting is... By the way, plugs are always allowed. (laughs) Yes, shameless plugs. Uh, (laughs) Theatlantic.com. So what's interesting is the... um, the president has been complaining about a democratic drift or a liberal drift on the part of Fox News, and he's upset that certain Donna Brazil is now a commentator for Fox News. So, and he, as you point out, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, his former press secretary and a, and a good, reliable Republican conservative, is now joining uh, the network and appearing on Fox and Friends. So you really wonder about this complaint that the president has made. And it's validity because there's, I mean, Fox News is a long way from becoming MSNBC here, right? I would think. Don't watch it that much. But there's like two Democrats that go on. So now he's mad. Yeah. So you got Juan Williams and now Donna Brazil. And yeah, I, you know, and when he talks about kind of I mean, phony, though, isn't it? Right. I mean, when, when maybe and, and, and the fake war- news, the, the warnings he puts out sort of suggest yeah. that his followers will not watch anymore. He's, it's threatening. And the truth of the matter is, I mean, and, and you know, you you have the sort of legitimate broadcasters on Fox News saying, look, we don't work for you. And when you watch Fox News, you know, sort of the middle of the day, early mm-hmm. evening, it sort of looks like a, you know, a real network. If you watch. I mean, there's a Bre- lot. I, I, you I'll, watch I'll, Brett Baer. Like, there's a lot of, like, like serious journalists at Fox sure. News. Yes. I mean, it's, it's the talking heads that really sort of push it to the right. But, I mean, Brett Baer's a fantastic journalist. Chris John Wallace. Roberts. Uh, Chris Wallace. Chris Wall- Chris Wallace is one of like the toughest interviewers out there, yeah, and it's absolutely. two Republicans as well as Democrats. Right, and I and I I think um, we all know that the, the the Trump people are in the evening, right? It's Tucker, it's Morning Sean and Hannity, evening. and yeah. it's uh, Janine Perot, yeah. whatever. Um, great conversation so far, and we got a lot more to cover here on today's edition of the Bill Press Pod with Nikki Schwad and Peter Nicholas and Chris Liu. It's the Bill Press Roundtable. We're brought to you today by the International Association of Firefighters. You see those fire trucks rushing by to help out uh, some family in trouble. I give them a big wave, and when I do, I also thank them for the support of the uh, Bill Press Pod, uh, good men and women of our firefighting departments on the front lines every day protecting American families under the leadership of President Harold Shateberger. Uh, check out their website at the IAFF. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's home equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. And we're back here with uh, Chris Liu, Peter Nicholas, and Nikki Schwab. And I think we all have to uh, apologize to poor Mitch McConnell. Um, some of us have actually gone so far as to call him Moscow Mitch, which he says, uh, look, you can have fun with me, but this is over the line, folks. This is pure McCarthyism, as he told Hugh Hewitt on the radio this week. Yeah, I mean, it's modern-day McCarthyism. Um uh, unbelievable for a cold warrior like me who's spent a career standing up to the Russians to be given a moniker like that is an effort to smear me. Uh, you know, I can laugh about things like uh, the Grim Reaper, but uh, calling me Moscow Mitch is uh, over the top. Over the top, Chris? Look, I, I'd rather focus. I mean, it's it's sort of funny how how you can get that nickname trending on Twitter pretty fast. But, but, I, but we should, maybe we should tell everybody how he got the nickname, right? Is that he refused to even allow a vote? Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, oh, go ahead. Know, he, yeah. he has essentially sat on a, an election security bill that's been passed by the House, and we can quibble about what's in the bill. But he's been unwilling to take up anything. And then you layer on top of that, at least in the past couple of weeks, where he said, "Look, I'm not going to take up anything." Uh, on gun safety unless the president says it's okay, which is not sort of my understanding of how the separation of powers is supposed to work. And so he's really abdicated all responsibility of the U.S. Senate right now to the president. Uh, and a, a lot of things really ought to happen and could happen on a bipartisan basis if he allowed votes on them. Right. Uh, does this indicate maybe, Peter, that he's worried about his reelect? I wonder about a couple things, though. I wonder, I'm interested in how he... Uh, how he's deferring to the president here and saying he's going to wait to see what the president decides before getting behind a gun control bill. And I wonder if he feels, given his president's track record, that the rug will be pulled out. <coughs> Excuse me, the rug will be pulled out from under him. Again. Again. <laughs> Again. And he's seen this mm -hmm. happen before, and Trump wavers so much and doesn't seem to know his own mind in many instances, mm. that if you're Mitch McConnell, why do you want to rally your GOP caucus for a vote when the president might not be there in the end. So I do think that Mitch McConnell has his own frustrations with this White House and has learned through bitter experience that you can't depend necessarily that the, uh, this president will follow through on a, on a legislative commitment. Well, especially on guns. I mean, guns is so toxic on the right. Um, and so I, th I, think the, I think you're absolutely right on that point. Right. So let's, let's talk about that as a good segue into Walmart really, I mean, as a big liberal, me, I remember just not so long, a couple of years ago, we were all up in arms against Walmart for all kinds of reasons. They weren't paying their employees or weren't paying women a fair salary. And, and now here's Walmart leading the pack saying, we've got to do something about guns in society. We're not going to sell the AR-15 anymore. We're not going to sell handguns in Alaska. We're not going to sell this ammunition. And we think Congress has got to do something and pass background checks. Whoa. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, there's definitely movement on this. And I mean, if you look at sort of um, just sort of voter demographics in general, I mean, you look at the youth vote right now, they're really pro-gun control. So I think, you know, you're seeing, uh, you know, a, a bigger swath of the, of the U.S. sort of 
moving in that direction. Obviously, like, you know, things like background checks have had, you know, numbers in like the 90s for a long time as far as people, you know, wanting to get that kind of stuff done. Uh, but I think corporations are also realizing that it's it's probably good. Like, you know, you probably now per- perhaps will go to a Walmart and buy <laughs> some stuff, right? I mean, it, it doesn't, I mean, there. No. If, if you want to sort of talk about who shops at Walmart, I mean, you might get like a little boost in sales and other, you know, other areas because you've done this. And Walmart was joined by Kroger, CVS, and Wegmans so far um, yeah. that I know of, uh, Chris. I mean, this is corporate responsibility. Yeah, and right? let's, that, let's put, again, put this in a broader context. You may have seen two weeks ago Business Roundtable, which yes. represents about 200 major companies, put out a brand new sort of mission statement saying, we're now going to be more concerned about things like sustainability and about workers. And, again, and the environment. And the, right. And we, could, we can quibble about how real that is. But it is part of a broader trend with what you're seeing in corporate America. While Trump pulls out of Paris, corporations are still moving ahead in terms of climate change. You know, when it comes to um, hiring of LGBTQ, uh, you know, corporate America understands that's good for us, even as this administration is pulling backwards. So while Washington retreats on many of these issues, uh, corporate America is taking the lead and they should be applauded for that. Right. Uh, a new sign of this. So um, kind of a little quick lightning round here <laughs> on a couple of uh, issues we haven't gotten to yet. Um, maybe we can take some relief or satisfaction in that as screwed up as things seem in this country, uh, we are moving like clockwork compared to the UK and Britain in dealing with Brexit, which led to this week when Boris Johnson just loses it uh, in Parliament as his members of his own party walk away from him, and he turns to uh, Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader, and calls him something, well, here we go. Mr Speaker, I know he's worried about free trade deals with America, but there's only one chlorinated chicken that I can see in this house, and he's on that bench. Will he confirm again? Will he confirm? Will he confirm that he will let the people... Chlorinated kitchen? A chicken, rather? I mean, Moscow Mitch is nothing compared to that, Peter. Well, you wonder how... Has Johnson lost it? I mean, is he... Yeah, you have to wonder about uh, Johnson's uh, longevity. I mean, people complained about Theresa May and her durability, but she's looking like Margaret Thatcher in some ways compared to Johnson (laughs) and the difficulties that he's had. Um, He's lost his majority in Parliament, and he came in with this one explicit promise. It was his equivalent of, I'm going to build the wall, which was there was going to be Brexit. And he's... We're now seeing how difficult that is, and he's so far not able to get it done. And his term is going to be pretty short-lived if this isn't resolved. All right, now um, put your labor hat on, uh, your former labor hat on, Chris. The job numbers are out today for the month of um, August. August. Uh, 130,000 new jobs? 130,000 jobs were created in the economy. That's a noticeable slowdown um, from previous months, and especially over last year. Uh, noticeably in that numbers of the 130,000, 25,000 come from the hiring of temporary census workers in anticipation for the 2020 census. Mm. So you're really looking at about 100. And so when you take those numbers, you combine them with the consumer confidence numbers from last week, the manufacturing numbers from this week. Uh, it tells the story of an economy in dramatic slowdown. Whether we hit recession is unclear at this Still point. Still moving forward, but not as brisk as we exactly. thought. Right. Um, and Nikki, um, there's nothing like that people love better than a love story or a love scandal. Ooh, 
Uh, and you've been talking, writing about one of um, with Ilan Omar, Congresswoman Ilan Omar. Correct. This was our big scoop in the last couple of days is that Ilan Omar has a political consultant named uh, Tim Minette. And there's some rumblings that they have uh, been getting cozy. And then Beth Minette, the wife of Tim Minette, filed for divorce and put in legal documents that her husband was having this affair and confessed that he is, was in love with Ilhan Omar. And it's all, you know, there in black and white. And I was the first reporter that picked up these documents from the D.C. courthouse, and we broke that story. Uh, and then a couple of days later, I went back, and I, I got Tim Minette's filing, in which he was like, you know, my wife and I have not been in a good place for a long time, but I'm not sleeping with Ilhan Omar. And so he now put that in his legal documents. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But sort of the uh, sort of more, you know, the, sort of the bigger issue is the fact that he, as a political consultant, was still being paid by her campaign fund months after uh, he left his wife. So, yeah. I mean, obviously the FEC so, is toothless right now, but uh, she could be dealing with some some issues there. So stay tuned. Stay tuned, exactly. Uh, the New York Post.com? NYPost.com. NYPost.com. Okay. Uh, very, very good. Now, we always uh, ask you to embellish... Uh, or to add to the fun of the uh, roundtable with your own favorite story uh, of the week. doesn't have to be serious, just something that caught your attention. Um, how about you, Chris? Uh, Crazy Rich Asians, a sequel is, two sequels are actually planned, and you may have seen this. The production of the sequel <laughs> has been slowed down right now because of a dispute about how the writers are being paid. The white writer, a white male writer, um, <laughs> was offered a salary between eight and ten times more than the Asian American woman writer. No. Mind you, the lead of this movie is an Asian American woman. <laughs> and it sort of raises, obviously, broader issues about pay equity um, in Hollywood. But it's um, the, the Asian American woman has walked off. Mm. And so they are um, now now recalibrating. Uh, I missed that. I'm glad you uh, brought that to the table. Peter? We discussed it earlier, but I have to say I'm just still struck by the president's um, uh, position about that Alabama was under threat <laughs> from Hurricane Dorian and, and the Sharpie and this whole drama and the fact that he won't let it go and the country is ready to move on and he just won't do it, I think speaks to uh, an issue and a problem here that um, has been percolating for some time and doesn't seem to be getting better. The country wants their president to be focused on real problems, and we're talking to here about a hypothetical problem that never happened. And uh, I just think it's um, it's a, an arresting story that I can't uh, turn away from. Uh, it is hard to let go of. Nikki? So I have been completely engrossed in this book, and there was actually an excerpt that came out this week on Politico's website. It's Garrett Graff's new book, and it is like a play-by-play, -play, a narrative play-by-play -play of 9-11. And it will make you cry. It'll make you, you know, really sort of feel courageous and happy about these first responders. And obviously, you know, at the New York Post, we've been covering a ton of stuff in regards to the first responders and getting their sort of their victim compensations fund bill mm. passed. And this is in the last couple of months. So it's, it's a really it's a really great read. And, you know, I'm you know anticipating that, you know, next week, obviously, we're, we're hitting, what, 18 years after 9-11. So we'll see President Trump, uh, you know, be there and memorialize. It once again. The name of the book? Do we know? It is the only the only plane in the sky. The, oh right, the only plane in the yeah, sky. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, my favorite story is Maurice. Do you all know about Maurice? Mm -mm. Well, Maurice is a rooster. Uh, Maurice is a rooster in France on the island of Oléron, which is down off the southwest coast, very close to Biarritz, where the G7 was. Uh, and Maurice is just a rooster that does his thing every morning. 
uh, on this island. There were a couple who own a vacation home on there who were very upset because they didn't get all the extra sleep they thought they'd grow <laughs> during their vacation because the rooster would crow every morning. So they actually sued the rooster, Maurice, <laughs> and the, his owners. Uh, and they went to court, <laughs> took Maurice to court, and the judge yesterday ruled in Maurice's favor and f and forced the uh, vacation home owners who's, who um, s brought the case to pay 1,000 euros to Maurice uh, for the uh, court damages, the court costs. The mayor of Oléron said uh, famously, quote, this rooster was not being unbearable. He was just being himself. <laughs> so I don't know. The justice is done somewhere in the world. Can I, think I just say there's nothing new under the sun? I used to write for the <laughs> New Orleans Times Picayune. I covered uh, the North Shore, St. Tammany Parish, and we had the same problem. It was a rooster that was crowing <laughs> and a neighbor that was upset and a neighbor threatening to sue over this rooster keeping everyone awake. So a photographer and I went out at 4 o'clock in the morning to Madisonville, Louisiana, and we uh, to stake out this rooster and hear it crow, and we interviewed everybody, and this was in the late 1980s. So it's just these stories just uh, keep recycling. You know, Peter, you could have been an expert witness in this, in this case if Peter had not. <laughs> I, I'm staking out cheating husbands and you're staking out roosters. So. I thought these stories were going to end with like a chicken in a pot or something like that, actually. So I'm glad that Maurice got his money. <laughs> Thank you, Chris Lou. Thanks, Peter Nicholas. Thanks, uh, Nikki Schwab. Uh, great conversation. Uh, I want to wrap things up with a uh, parting shot here. And I always uh, hasten to add that the parting shot represents my views and not necessarily views of the panel. But any White House reporter will tell you the same thing. The problem with covering the Trump White House these days is that there's so much news every day that a lot of stories don't get all the coverage they deserve and some hardly get any coverage at all. We talked about a little earlier this, this week, for example, there was a lot of attention to Hurricane Dorian, Mike Pence's trip to Ireland, Boris Johnson's blow up in Parliament, Walmart's brave stand on guns, but one important story almost got lost in the middle of everything else as suggested, in other words, as ordered by Donald Trump, Defense Secretary Mike, Mark Esper diverted $3.6 billion from the Pentagon to help build Donald Trump's wall. Yes, that wall, the wall Mexico was supposed to pay for. Any other time, this would have been the biggest story of the week. It's a blatant violation of the separation of powers, as spelled out in the Constitution, where it's the role of Congress, not the executive, to appropriate funds, and Congress has refused several times to fund the wall. It steals money from 127 badly needed and already approved construction projects on military bases, including new classrooms, daycare centers, and expanded piers to accommodate more submarines. It's all being done so Donald Trump doesn't have to face re-election without having built at least a tiny bit of his stupid wall. And finally, it violates what's been the guiding principle of past presidents, both Republican and Democrat, that defense dollars are spent to defend the nation, not to fulfill campaign promises. Quick, somebody tell Donald Trump. That's it for today. That's it for this podcast. Again, thanks to our panelists, Nikki Schwab, Peter Douglas, Peter Nicholas, I'm sorry, and Chris Liu. Thanks to all of you for joining us. We hope to see you again and encourage you to subscribe to the Bill Press Pod. It's easy and it's free. Just go to Apple Podcasts, Google, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, or Spotify. 
pull up the Bill Press Pod and subscribe. And if you really want to put a smile on our face, please give us a big fat five-star review. That really helps us get the word out. One quick program note, don't miss our next podcast where a couple of leading mental health professionals examine Peter, President Trump's words and actions and issue an urgent warning about the public danger they see posed by having Donald Trump in the White House. Don't miss it. That's next on the Bill Press Pod. We'll see you then.